All right, take a Bible, uh, either out of your pew or on your phone or whatever, and open it to Luke chapter 14, verse 1, Luke 14. Uh, we'll have it up on the screen, too, uh, for you. But uh, we are, we're teaching through the gospel of Luke. We've been doing it forever, right, Dave? Forever. We decided on this at Chipotle, like, three years ago, and... Uh, we're grateful for that because we're looking at the life of Jesus and we're looking at what he has to teach us. And so this section of Luke, we're calling the journey because really all throughout this section of Luke, we see Jesus teaching and showing his disciples what it means to follow him and to join him on his journey. He's making his way towards Jerusalem, ultimately toward his death. And all throughout this section, Jesus is defining and revealing this theme called the kingdom of God. It is really literally the rule and the reign of God, the, the domain of God's rule. And uh, sometimes when we hear a concept like this, the kingdom of God, it's a bit confusing for us. Sometimes we hear a word like that and we, we think maybe we know what we me- it is, but maybe we're a little confused. Like who, like the kingdom of, like which God exactly? And what exactly is a kingdom? And What's this God like? And sometimes we misuse the concept <clears throat> because we misunderstand it. Um, about five years ago, when my son uh, Milo was born, my daughter Penny, who our oldest at the time, was three, and she was loving her new little brother. She was the most enthusiastic big sister you can imagine. And she was snuggling him on our couch, and she was holding him, and she was looking at him with all this affection. She just said, "Oh Milo, you're such an idiot." And I thought, you know what? I don't think that that word means what you think that it means. <laughs> right? Like, oh, oh, I love you so much. You're such an idiot. Right? Like, she was just so, like, it was this huge term of endearment for her. Obviously, she had heard that term somewhere. I don't know where she heard that. <laughs> Lauren. Anyway, um, <laughs> it was just one of those great moments, right? And so sometimes, oftentimes for Christians or, or, or non-Christian people alike, when we hear the, the word kingdom of God, maybe we assume some things about that. And we assume that maybe it, 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 it is a reference to heaven after you die. Um, yeah, this is, this is just a nice place you go if you do the right things or believe the right things. Someday, somewhere else, sometime else. Or some... Uh, believe it's more just like a transcendent religious experience. It's the, those feelings of closeness to the transcendent. Or, or maybe it's just the brotherhood and sisterhood of all as they, uh, they do good for others, right? This is the kind of liberal view of it. And so these all kind of fall short uh, in terms of what Jesus is defining, the words that are coming out of his mouth and the actions that he's demonstrating. And Luke presents the kingdom of God as this journey. It's a process. It involves our participation. It involves us walking in it and trusting and surrendering. But also for Luke, maybe above all others, except for maybe John at times, John uses the words kingdom of God only once. Luke, he compares the kingdom to a party. Right? What is the kingdom like? It is like a party. Uh, it is a joyful feast to end all feasts. It's a party for Luke. Uh, it's a party for the humble. It's a party with power. It's a, power. it's a party that's utterly free and for the utterly humble. It's a party without pretense, and it's for the poor and for the hurting and for the losers, and it is a party that is extended through our own hospitality. And so today in our text, it's a long 24 verses, and we're going to get into it, and so I hope you can just kind of buckle your seatbelts and get ready to roll 
but we're going to look at how Jesus defines and, and clarifies the kingdom. He's going to show us three realities today. He's going to show us the power of the kingdom, the attitude of the kingdom, the pattern of the kingdom, and the affection of the kingdom. So the first thing's first here. We see this picture of Jesus' kingdom is one that brings the power of heaven into our world. Let's take a look at the text. Um, verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. And Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts of the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, this incident takes place on the Sabbath. Sabbath is a day for rest. It is a day for renewal. It is the day to take the hands off of the wheel and allow God to run the universe without your help. That is Sabbath. And uh, the setting is the Sabbath meal. And so this is prepared the day beforehand so you can take your hands off the wheel and let God be God, right? And so it is a Sabbath lunch at the house of a prominent Pharisee. They've come home from synagogue. It's this lunch after church kind of vibe, right? And so Jesus takes notice of somebody who is either there at the meal or on the road along the way. We're not exactly sure. It doesn't clarify. And this man is said to have uh, a, 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 um, a swelling of the body. Basically, it's, a, it's called dropsy in antiquity or edema today, but it's where your joints swell up with water, and it's a horrible, horrible affliction because the reality is you drink and you're always thirsty, but everything you drink ends up making you more thirsty because all you drink just goes back to swelling your body further. And so it is just constant pain and endless insatiable thirst. And uh, man, what a great description of our world, right? Pain all around, insatiable thirst, right? Always thirsting for more. And the point here isn't so much whether or not this man is there to, as, a, as invited to trap Jesus. The point is, what will Jesus do in the face of someone who's always hurting and never satisfied? And so Luke says he's, he's being watched. People are looking for Jesus to do something wrong to use against him. And Jesus asked this question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? It says that they remained silent, right? We've, we've seen this trick before, Jesus. It's a Sabbath. You're going to do something miraculous that we think maybe you shouldn't do. And then we're still going to have nothing to say at the end of it. So we better not talk now, right? And so taking hold of the man, it says, he healed him and sent him on his way. And then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox and it falls into a well on a Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? Silence. They had nothing to say. A couple observations, right? Uh, this uh, affliction of dropsy at the time is viewed as a negative thing, like as if it is a result of poor life choices, which may or may not have been true. Uh, the question is, why is this guy mixing with the Pharisees? They wouldn't normally do that. Maybe he is there to trap Jesus. The text doesn't tell us, but what he, the text of Luke tells us is what Jesus does. What, what does Jesus do in the face of chronic pain and in the face of insatiable thirst? He brings the power of heaven. That's what he does. Look at the incredible power here. It says, taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. In Greek, that is five words. In English, it's 14. But in a mere five words, with seemingly effortless power, Jesus restores this man to the way things ought to be for him. And so this is heaven invading a life all at the hands of Jesus. 
And so this is the power Jesus brings. But take notice of the Pharisees here. How did they respond to heaven's presence in their midst? Silence, right? Hey, so is it lawful to restore somebody to how they ought to be on the Sabbath, i.e. the purpose of the Sabbath altogether? Silence. Heal them. If your kid fell in a hole on the Sabbath, would you drag them out? Silence. What kind of person is silent in the face of a miracle like this? I mean, think about it. Like, this guy is all swollen up, and then he walks away whole, no longer thirsting, no longer in pain. Remember, all the miracles are signs in the Gospels. They point somewhere. They point to the power of heaven. They point to the authority of Jesus. But is this the kind of event that should leave us speechless? Is usually what happens when Jesus heals on the Sabbath. This is the, the third time, right? And, and now, everybody's silent. Before, everybody praises God, right? So, if our posture towards Jesus is to find something wrong with him, we'll ultimately have nothing to say. But if our posture towards Jesus is gratitude, if our heart towards Jesus is gratitude in the face of what he does with what's wrong with us, we'll have everything to say. In a sense, this event shows that what Jesus does for us has the last word. Jesus' opponents will be left without any word. This is a remarkable thing. Heaven will have the last word. This is the first thing we see in the story, that the kingdom Jesus brings is a kingdom that comes with the power of heaven in our lives. It's a power to satisfy our thirsts. It's a power to heal our hurts. I mean, Jesus moves in with incredible compassion. It's a power to make broken people whole people, and it's a power that flows from the hand of Jesus. The question as we engage this text is, will I reach out to Jesus? Will I allow him to take my hand and bring heaven into my life? And that is, that's the question. The, the second thing we have here is that the kingdom requires an attitude. The first thing we see is the kingdom brings a power, the power of heaven. The second thing is that the kingdom requires a very specific attitude. And in fact, it's an attitude it not only requires, but it also creates that attitude. The kingdom, in other words, is for those who embrace an attitude of humility. The kingdom is for the humble. In fact, if you live in the kingdom, if you enter the kingdom, you will grow in humility. Look at verse 7 with me. When he noticed how the guests picked up the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. And so Jesus is just, he's a great social observer. He's paying close attention to the vibe of the room and how people are behaving with one another. And I love the boldness of Jesus. He doesn't just kind of passively go like, oh man, they're all doing dumb stuff. He like tells them a story to hold up a mirror to their behavior. It's crazy. This is so cool. Verse 8. So when somebody invites you to a wedding feast... Don't take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you uh, may have been invited. If, if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the place of least importance. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place, and then you will be honored in the presence of all of the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so what is it the people are doing on the Sabbath meal lunch? They're, they're, they're 
they're clamoring for places of honor, right? They want the best seats. Um, in, the, in the ancient Near East, the, the table would be something like a U, right? Kind of like when you go to a wedding, right? There's the wedding party at the head table. And, and the best seats are the ones closest to the host. They, they kind of communicate to everybody else at the meal that you're higher up in the hierarchy chain as you sit closer to the host. And, and so Jesus is kind of calling this whole social structure into question. And he's... Uh, on, on, some hand, on one hand, and he's, he's calling out the character that's involved in trying to climb up the ladder. Um, one of the things that helps us understand this scene is that, uh, to view Jesus in the context of his entire ministry. He's always doing this thing called table fellowship. It, 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 he's always eating with people and kind of sharing life with people over meals. He's accused of eating with the social rejects, the tax collectors, the ones who are sinners, the the prostitutes, and he's habitually keeping non-reputable company. This is is what Jesus is up to all throughout the Gospels. And so uh, this is the crowd, this non-reputable crowd is the one that receives him super gladly. But here, Jesus is now moving toward relationship with people he knows are opposed to him. He moves towards the religious and the non-religious alike. I think this is remarkable. He's moving to both religious lost people and he's moving towards irreligious lost people. This is how Jesus rolls, right? Because he recognizes you can be lost in many ways. And he's moving toward relationship with both of them. But here's the thing. He's saying that his kingdom is a feast. Or if you're Pastor Gabby, it's a fiesta. We talked about that this week. She and I. She says, it's a fiesta, Matt. All right, yes. Uh, and so the kingdom is this fiesta. It's this party. It's a, it's a banquet. And the table is this metaphor to explain the nature of God's rule. But get this. It's a feast for the humble. It's not a feast for the proud. And so meals like this in Jesus' day, and in some ways we're no different from meals in our day. What, what do you do if you have a business? You... you, you have business lunches, right? You, you try to uh, close a deal over lunch. Um, we, we have social meals, don't we? Where we, we want to try to secure our inclusion into a group by having dinner with somebody that we want to do something for us or, or, or help move us into some inner circle that we want to be a part of. And so Jesus says, look, the whole way you are approaching this lunch reveals a kind of arrogance, a kind of self-centered abuse of one another. And so he criticizes the guests and he says, you want recognition from this prominent host. You're using his attention as a platform for yourself. And the closer to the host, the more important you think you are perceived to be. And he criticizes the host here in a second. And he says, you're using your guests. You don't invite the nobodies. You only have room for the somebodies. Because you as a host are using your guests to further prop up your own importance. And so Jesus critiques the whole meal. He's critiquing their way of table fellowship because it runs counter to the reversal his kingdom is bringing. The overall character of this group at lunch is an inwardly focused and upwardly mobile group. And Jesus is saying that my kingdom, my kingdom reverses that. It exalts the downwardly mobile and outwardly focused. And if you can embrace that, it requires humility, but it will result in exaltation. So he says, don't go for the power seat. He says, don't go and grab onto the chair that has the most honor. 
He says, go the other direction. Go to the chair that's lowest. He says, quit shoving your way into a place of recognition. Right? It will only lose you an audience. He says, be willing to lose your audience in order to gain actual honor. He says, it's so much better to sit in the lowest place and be invited up than to be rejected from it. But when we're self-asserting, when we say, this seat is mine, this position on the org chart is mine, this promotion is mine, this compliment should have been mine, whatever it is for you, he says, when we're trying to secure a place for ourselves at the table, it's going to work against us. Uh, the, the, The real secure ones are the ones who've been invited and the ones who are humble enough to receive a place, but not on their own terms on the terms of the host. C.S. Lewis, in his book, uh, The Four Loves, he, he writes something fairly profound about this reality. He says, um, and I think it's relevant to the way we do relationships, and I think he's getting at this principle that Jesus is speaking of. He says, uh, path- I love this, Lewis can get away with this. He says, pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that you must want something besides friends. In other words, in order for a relationship to develop, you have to have something greater than just wanting a relationship. Otherwise, you're going to suck that person dry, right? You're going to be a really, really leechy kind of person, right? And nobody wants to be friends with that. So I'm, this is wisdom for you if you find yourself leeching. Like, stop it, okay? Just stop it, all right? And here's what Lewis is getting at, I think. He's saying that, that people who most want to be liked are never liked, Right? If you notice that, you just don't really like that person who's always trying to be liked, do you? You kind of want to kick them in the shins a little bit when they come around. Stop it. Stop it. That's what you want to say to them, right? But the people who don't seem to care that much whether or not you like them always end up getting liked. If you notice that, like, why do people like that guy? Why do people like her? She doesn't seem to care. This is kind of funny, right? Uh, And he has this other address that he calls the inner ring, where he basically says this. Lewis says, Fiction is full of characters who are hag-ridden by the desire to get inside that particular ring called society. People who believe themselves uh, to be free from social snobbery uh, may be devoured by this desire in another form. He says, An invitation from a duchess would be cold comfort to a man who is smarting under exclusion from some artistic coterie. It's... Not large lighted rooms and champagne this man wants. It's that little studio with heads bent together and the delicious knowledge that we four or five are the only people who really know. This desire, Lewis says, this desire to be on the inner ring of people you want to like you, he says, is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. But, he says, and this is his Jesus-y point, I think, Lewis says, but until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider you will remain. This is like profound stuff, isn't it? This is, this is what Jesus is getting at. There's this principle at work here. If you're always after honor, you won't get it. Right? If you're after, always after position, you might have it for a while, but that will be all you have, and then the thing that you really wanted, which was acceptance or validation, will ultimately be pulled from you. If you are always trying to get recognized, people won't want to give you attention. They may for a little while, but it will wear them out eventually. And so the one trying to exalt herself will be humbled, and the one humbling herself will find that she is exalted in the end. This, by the way, isn't about false humility. The false humility that basically just tells a lie and says, oh, I'm not that good. Oh, I'm I'm not that qualified. Well, no, that's actually a lie, right? I mean, 
Oh, I'm not that good at this thing that I'm actually quite gifted at. That's not humility. That's just self-deception. And well, there's another word for it too. But um, humility, right, lives within the truth. Humility lives within the truth of who God has made us. It acknowledges our weaknesses and it acknowledges our strengths, but it recognizes where our strengths come from. Humility is self-awareness. It also means a willingness to elevate others above ourselves. An arrogant person can't stand elevating somebody else above themselves. A humble person does it naturally. They look for others to elevate over themselves. And this is uh, something that is humanity's maybe most attractive trait, and it's also our maybe most elusive characteristic. Erwin McManus says that while humanity is rarely, or I'm sorry, while humility is rarely a highly pursued virtue among men, it is essential if we are to be restored to the image and likeness of God. Why? Because as Philippians 2 says, God has humbled himself. Right? If we are to become like him and relate to him, we must embrace a path of humility. Because God is a humble one. So the question for us today is, where am I actually challenged in this attitude of humility? Where's the seat of honor I'm tempted to grab? Where is that, where is that place I'm tempted to constantly grasp at that seat of honor for myself? Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's the attention of that one person in your circle. Maybe it's that whole circle that doesn't seem to notice you. Maybe it's that person just slightly above you on the org chart. Or where, whatever that is for you, where are the places where I'm just tempted to always be pointing inward so I can move upward? And will I recognize the path of humility is willing to move downward and outward? So that's the second reality, that the kingdom is given to those who embrace an attitude of humility. But you, you can't enter it without humility, right? And oftentimes, people don't enter the kingdom. They, they, they put up the smoke screen, and they say, and maybe this is you today, say, As it, Jesus just seems too primitive for me. Or it seems too intellectually unsatisfying for me. Well, at the end of the day, I, what I often find is it's, it's not that it's too intellectually unsatisfying or that it's too primitive but ultimately, it's too humbling. It's too humbling to enter his kingdom. This means I have to ultimately say, I'm not that good at ruling myself, and I need a king who can rule me better. Right? Uh, because at the end of the day, the kingdom is too common. It accepts everyone. It accepts people I despise. It's too common. It's too humbling. But will you be humble enough to enter the kingdom, to be ruled by the one who loves you? This third thing, then, uh, this is, uh, I want to spend some time here. The third reality we see is that Jesus reveals the nature of the kingdom of God, this kingdom feast, by, by, by showing us that it has this pattern of hospitality. And this is just so awesome. It's so cool. The, the main way that the kingdom rolls out into the messiness of human life is through humans, excuse me, making space for one another. It's through hospitality as the pattern of the kingdom, that the kingdom is extended as we make space for one another in our life, as we make space for the stranger. Look at what Jesus says in verse 12. He says this. He says, then he, now he's addressing the host. So he just addressed the guests, right? And he's calling them out to a path of humility. And now he addresses the host. And he says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters or your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, you may invite them back 
and so you will be repaid. Again, this is one of those kind of hyperbolic statements. He doesn't mean don't have like Easter lunch with your relatives. He's not saying don't ever hang out with your friends, right? Just in the same way he says, I tell you, unless you, you hate your mother and father, you may not enter the kingdom of God. He's talking about the order and weight of our priorities, right? He's saying, unless you, unless you are so radically in love with me that every other thing it, it almost feels like hate because you love me so much, right? He's saying, you can't enter. Unless, unless you put others above those who can just do things for you is what he's getting at here. And so look at verse 13. He says, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So Jesus is saying, look, don't orient yourself to the ones who can do something for you. Make space in your life for the ones who can't repay you. Part of this kind of self-aggrandizing arrogance of this prominent Pharisee is that his social, social interaction is all self-serving. But Jesus contrasts this way of his heart with the, the kingdom feast. He says the kingdom feast is ultimately about investing in those who, who can't necessarily be in a position to invest back in you. So you offer yourself to those who are in no position to return the favor. He says, don't make space for people so that they will feel indebted to you. Don't make space only for the ones who can get you ahead. Don't make space for those, but make space for the poor, for the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And he says, when you practice hospitality for a stranger like that, he says, then you'll be blessed. So, friends, if humility is about refusing to grasp the best seats, then hospitality is about making sure that there is always an open seat. Are you with me? Yeah, so hospitality is about always being sure that there's an open seat for the other, for the stranger, for the one who can't necessarily serve your agenda, but you can serve Jesus' agenda and loving them by making sure there's a space for them at your table. And so what's involved in hospitality? Um, uh, just a, a couple things. Let me give you a quick explanation and then I'll give you an illustration. The, the, the explanation of what is involved in hospitality is this, that hospitality is welcoming people into the, your living space. Now, we have more than one living space. You have your place where you actually dwell, but you also have other third places besides work and your home where you hang out all the time. So some of you might find, I, I, I just, I can't, I can't get that many people into my living space. It gives me tons of anxiety or whatever. There are other places that you inhabit that you can make space for, right? Um, and some of you just need to get over people's perception of your living space too. I had people over all the time into a living space that was like n- not all that like glorious, right? He's just, he's got to do it. He's got to do it. You got to make space in the place you live for others. So hospitality is welcoming people warmly into your living space and treating strangers as family, right? This is actually the New Testament word for hospitality. Uh, the New Testament word for hospitality is literally love of strangers, right? And so it is treating strangers as family. Strangers, there's, there's, Hey, let me tell you, in this room, there are strangers, right? So on one hand, that's Christians inviting other strange Christians into your home, right? Let me tell you, you don't have to look very far for a strange Christian in a church. You'll get one, right? <laughs> but also, all right, your neighbor, right? The people who just live around you, who do life in proximity to you. Right? And also the needy, the ones who cannot prop themselves up, 
that need someone to welcome them in. And then ultimately, hospitality involves God turning strangers into friends, right? This is when we treat strangers as family, it creates space where God can take strangers and make them friends. That's what the gospel does, where God is actually the host, right? He's the one who orchestrates community. And so what does it look like to invite people into our lives, into our spaces, and what's required of us to live out the kingdom hospitality? Well, a few months ago, um, Actually, I got to be on sabbatical last May through uh, beginning of August. And right when we got back, um, the my very first Sunday back from very restful sabbatical, uh, we, our friends uh, who had been foster parents to um, a particular child found out that this child and her birth mother were living in their car and had been for days and were fleeing abuse and, I mean, dramatic stuff, right? Like, What? What? How can this be? It's a four-year-old girl and her mom who was actually pregnant at the time. And so um, our friends were not able to take them in, and they couldn't find people to take them in. And so Lauren and I prayed about it and said, well, we can shuffle kids around, and I'm sure we can move them into one of our, one of our rooms, and we can just kind of move kids around, and we'll make space. We can, we can do it. Like, we haven't done anything taxing for 12 weeks, so... Like, at the time, we just thought, we can do anything, right? So we, we, we prayed through it, and, and so we took them in. And so one night, you know, the mom and her four-year-old, they show up, and they, all of their humanly possessions are in garbage bags, and they roll into our home, and we throw them a party, our welcome to the Bowens party, right? If you come live with us, you'll get a welcome to the Bowens party, too. Uh, we also throw them a, you found another place to live party later, too, but... Um, we, right, and and it only it was only a week, and it was intense, and it was. I got to tell you though, there was there was this place where they were they were heartbroken. The friends around them, the only people who really seemed to care about them, were heartbroken. They were they were running out of options, and so we had space, and we just said, okay, we can make room for them. And so they they came, and we entered this journey uh, that utterly blessed us. It was costly too. It was, it cost time, it cost money, it cost emotion, it cost our kids, it cost them a sense of safety and security. It cost them uh, a lot, right? It cost them a sense of safety because of the trauma that the little girl brought in with him, with her from her story. But Jesus wasn't lying. He said, look, when you invite in the, the sociologically crippled and the spiritually blind and the relationally poor, you're going to get blessed. And so I know it helped them get set up for their next season of life, to just have that respite for a week. I know that it helped them. But you know what it did to us? It, it radically transformed us. It blew our minds. And it expanded our hearts. It was awesome for us. Our relationship with God grew exponentially because... We entered into this process of prayer where we just needed Jesus to answer some things clearly, and he did. And it was awesome to come back to church after a break and see the church actually live out its calling. And some of you were a part of that story. And you helped, and you came, and you cleaned up lice, and you helped, and you came, and you, like, propped them up for their next stage of the journey. And some of you guys were important in that. And it, and it blew our minds. We got to see the bride of Christ, and we got to see the hands and feet of Jesus, and we got to see people in their pain, and it turned our hearts outward. 
So taking care of their needs was too big for us alone, and we got to share that journey with others. And it was one of the best ways to re-enter ministry after a break. It was one of the hardest ways, but it was one of the best ways. And so some of you have done stuff like that, right? Some of you have made space in your life. You've made space in your home for someone who's hurting. You've made space in your home uh, for someone who needs refuge. You've made space at your table weekly for people to search for meaning and hope and community. You've made space on your calendar to invest yourselves and pour yourselves out and to listen to somebody, to walk alongside them. You've made space in your heart to see others as, as Jesus sees them rather than obstacles on your calendar. Some of you have made space for a vulnerable child by adopting them and fostering them. That goes way longer than a week. Right? We, got, we got off easy on that story, but we're still involved and Lauren still texts and we're, we still get to be a part of their story because we've built a relationship. But some of you, you, it goes on and on in your home and you know the challenge and the cost of that. And some of you are more rich for it, right? You're deeper spiritually. You're more trusting in Jesus because you've seen him answer prayers. And you've seen him involved in that space of hospitality. Other, others of you are here today and you're thinking, well, that sounds nice, but hospitality isn't really my gift. That's not my spiritual gifting. I once took one of those spiritual gift tests and I didn't get hospitality as a gift. This sermon's for those people who check hospitality on those spiritual gift tests. Let me tell you about spiritual gift tests. <laughs> They're pretty dumb, all right? I've run them too. You know what's good? people around you affirming what you're gifted at because they see you doing it. That's way more effective. And guess what? This is not something Jesus says is only for those who are gifted at it. This is the way of the kingdom. If you enter my kingdom, if you walk in my kingdom, you'll live hospitable. All right, so it's a kingdom reality, not just an individual gifting reality. And some of you are here today and you think, Ah, it's just a, a gifting thing. No, let me tell you, it's a Christian virtue thing. It's the vehicle through which the God unfolds his kingdom of God. And, and if your home is too small, there's other places for you to be a host. Right? And, and if your calendar is too small, then you have a priority problem. Right? That it, some of you are here today and, and you're thinking, my calendar's so stacked, there's no margin for me to have any agenda beyond the one I've already set. This parable invites you into kingdom hospitality, which means creating space and margin for relationships to be built, to make space for other people in your life, for strangers to become friends. It's a space God uses to change hearts, and he'll change yours, and he'll bring about his rule in the people's lives that you host. It's a place where you can drop the need to compete and be in control, and a place where you can drop the need to be self-securing, and you can embrace compassion, and you can be others uplifting. I want to invite you to begin to offload what you have committed to in order to make margin to be hospitable. You have permission to say no to stuff so you can say yes to what God wants. So this kingdom advances one party at a time, one humble act of hospitality at a time. If you're a high school kid here today, you can give preference to the uncool kid and be hospitable to them. Parents, you can choose to live less busy lives for your own kids so that you can share in God's mission and make space for other families. Single friends, you're here today and you have 
more disposable time. You have more free space in your heart. You can give yourself more fully to the kingdom in some ways than some of your married friends. Those of you who are retired in this room, and I recognize it's the 9 a.m., so that's like a lot of you, right? The retired crew in here, you have more disposable time, right? More space, more time to invite young people into your life and to say, what is it that you need? And then encourage them because guess what? They need you to do that. Speaking as a young person, I'll say, I need you to do that. Speaking as your pastor, I'll say, your church needs you to do that. And some of you are doing that. And some of you are letting God write your story and using your hospitality that way. And here's something everybody can do on the way out today. Every one of us can invite somebody to lunch, right? We all can. What's the worst thing that can happen? It could be really awkward. It could be the worst conversation you'll ever have. They might want to hang out with you again. But you won't die, right? Right? You won't. You'll, you'll be okay. And you can say, this was a good try. Maybe we should find some other people to invite. You should invite somebody else somewhere next week, right? You know, the other thing, too, is if somebody invites you to lunch today, you can go, what, do I look needy and crippled and lame? Uh, no, but seriously, we can do that. We can move away from being strangers. Because there's strangers in a room this big, right? Connect with somebody. Invite them to lunch. Say, hey, you look like you might be fun to have lunch with. Give it a shot. So what's the worst that can happen? But we can't really live like this. And here's our last point. We need to close this. The last point is you can't really live like this. You can't really live humble. You can't really live hospitable by just saying, I need to be better at that. You can't do it. I mean, when was the last time you really said, I need to be better at something and then just got better at it? Right? Like, I'm still really bad at organization. I've been saying, I need to be more organized. I've, got, I've gotten incrementally better. And the only reason is because I've just invited people around me who are really good at it. Will you help me be organized? And they do. And I'm organized. Right? I'm delegated. That's it. Right? We just can't get better at stuff by trying harder. I mean, we can get incrementally better. But the last thing, and the fourth reality, is that Jesus shows us that the kingdom is driven and motivated by affection for the host. You have to have a greater affection to drive this. Look at verse 15. Look at this. Uh, When one of those at the table uh, heard him say this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married and so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. And then the owner of the house became angry and ordered that his servants go out quickly into the streets and the alleys in the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Hmm, sound familiar? Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. There's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out into the roads, the country lanes, and compel them to come in so that my house may be full. 
I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. I love this guy that gets up after Jesus has just kind of rebuked everybody. I love the nerve of the guy to get up and say something like this. Blessed is everyone who eats at the kingdom feast. <laughs> Jesus is like, uh, all right. Uh, it's kind of, I think it's kind of funny. And he knows that Jesus has been describing the kingdom. I love this. He gets the humility and the hospitality are descriptive of the kingdom. And so he says, blessed is the one who will eat this feast in the kingdom of God. He knows what Jesus is talking about. And, and the hum, th- these things are, th- he speaks confidently. But then Jesus gives a parable about the kingdom that takes it one step further. And it's a slam on Israel. It's a slam of the, on the lack of faith he finds among those whom the kingdom has been offered. His parable basically says, the original invitees just make excuses. The first one says, hey, I need to go check on my investment, right, my field. The other one says, I need to go inspect my cattle. I need to go make sure my wealth is secure. Third person says, I just got married, right? I'm going to be kind of busy. Sounds like us, doesn't it? Hey, my, my business is really important right now. I'll, get, I'll kind of get to some kingdom stuff later after I feel like I've got kind of control of things. Hey, ensuring my wealth is, is pretty important to me right now. I, I, you know, I can't really give my time other places. Hey, enjoying romance to me is really fulfilling right now. So I don't, I don't really have time for other relationships that are a little bit more difficult. What are the, what are the excuses that you gravitate towards? that decrease the kingdom's priority in your life. Well, Jesus says, this is the kind of party that needs to be full. This isn't a low attendance party. He says, this party's got to be full. And so he describes the host as one who invites the ones who would never be invited to such a feast, the undeserving, the ones who can't get there on their own. And what do they have to do for it? What do they have to do to get there? They just have to say yes. That's it. They just, have to, they just have to say, I'm in. That's all. They don't have to do anything to earn a space at the table. Look at what the, the host says. He says, come for everything is now ready. Does that remind you of something else Jesus says? The end of the Gospel of John. It is finished. It is prepared for you. Here's the beauty of the kingdom, friends. This is the last thing I'll say this morning. It is a free gift. It is free. The host of the kingdom, the king, has made space for you at his table. He's made space at this party that will end all parties. He hasn't made you earn it. He hasn't uh, made you jump through hoops for it. He says it's prepared. It's ready. You just have to enter. You just have to accept the invitation You just have to show up. When you see what Jesus has done, when you see what the host has done to secure a place for you, that he's paid the way for the meal. He's given his life where ours would be required. When you see what he's done to earn you a place at his table, when you see that it's free, it's for the humble, when you see that I don't need to exalt myself because he's exalted me. When you see, I don't have to earn it because his hospitality is free to me. I don't have to be self-securing. He's made a space for me at the table. 
When you see that reality, it frees you to do the same for other people. That's what's so beautiful about it. And see, when you get what the host has done for you to make space at his table, that you belong at his party, and that place is secure, what does it do? It drives your affections, doesn't it? You realize, I'm so loved. You're either going to reject it altogether, or it's going to completely warm your heart. And that affection for the host who's made a place for you will begin to set all other priorities in your life. You realize, my greatest affection is for the one who's made security for me, the one who has accepted me, the one who freely offers me a place at his table. See, there are those who make excuses and excuse themselves from what is freely offered. And then there are those who couldn't possibly get themselves to the feast who end up there and are secure in it. So who are you in this story? Are you the excuse maker? Are you the freeloader? There's only two options. You can be a freeloader today and it will reset every priority in your life because the affection for the host who loves you so well will drive every other love, every other affection. So would you allow God's grace today to foster a deeper affection for the host and create a greater dependency and priority on his feast in your life, inviting others to join in with you? We have a chance to do that at the table. We have a chance to come to God's grace and allow it to affect us and reset our priorities, a place where we can allow the tangibility of what Jesus has done for us to just reset our affections on the one who loves us. So would you come to the table this morning and make it a prayer. Make communion a prayer today as you come trusting, as you come believing, as you come confessing. Would you come to the table and say and pray with me, Lord, I have seen and I trust that you have paid my way into the kingdom of God. God, I see that I belong at your party because you love me and not because I have done anything of merit. God, I come to your table believing that your rule and your kingdom in my life is a great priority, the greatest priority. Would you move me to see others and love them as you love them? Would you move me to open my life to show the kingdom hospitality that you show so you can transform strangers into friends and friends with myself, friends with my community, and friends with you most of all because the gospel is the great gift that reconciles all to you through those who would trust Jesus. Come to the table this morning, friends, and make that your prayer. Amen.